When you go through the scriptures, there are different occasions, different passages where God's people, either explicitly or implicitly, are called to remember certain things. So what we're going to look at, we're going to look at eight verses of scripture where God's people either are explicitly or implicitly called to remember certain things. Remember that the task that Jesus had given his disciples was to go out and to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they were to make disciples, and they were to do what? Teach these disciples to obey everything that he had commanded them. So consider this message right here, a synopsis of, a kind of summary of eight things, at least, that we are called to do and remember as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll work through these together. I'm going to begin by calling your attention, if you wanted to write this down in your bulletin, the first thing we're called to remember, at least in this message that I'm calling to your attention. Remember Lot's wife. Luke 17, verse 32. Jesus said there, remember Lot's wife. One of the shortest verses in the Bible. Now you might say, I don't even know Lot's wife. So how could I remember her? Well, let me, help, uh, let me help you with that. We are introduced to Lot's wife in Genesis 19. Now, in the previous chapter, in Genesis 18, we are told that God purposed to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because its wickedness was great. The wickedness of those cities was indeed great. You look through Genesis 19 and you see rather quickly that the city was given over to homosexuality. You see that not only was it just a certain demographic, but the young and the old alike were given to homosexuality. Now again, even though it might be controversial in our day, and nothing mean is meant by this, but it's nonetheless true that the scripture, whether it's in Leviticus 18, or Leviticus 20, or as shown in Genesis 19, or as seen in 1 Timothy 1, or 1 Corinthians 6, or Romans 1, all of those texts clearly show homosexuality to be sin, to be against God's design, to be against nature. And it was one of the sins, one of the grievous sins, that so characterized Sodom wasn't the only sin that characterized Sodom. You look in Ezekiel chapter um, 16, verse 49, you see that the people of that city were arrogant. They had excess amounts of food. They had abundance of idleness or prosperous ease. And they didn't use what they had to strengthen the hands of the poor. We see that in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. This is where Lot lived. Lot was Abraham's nephew. This is where Lot's wife lived. And so this city, as well as surrounding ones, were going to be destroyed when God brought judgment from heaven upon the cities. Now God sent, you go into um, Genesis 19, you see how this works itself out. God sent two angels into the city to evacuate Lot and his family. You might recall that the brothers, the sons-in-law of Lot, they thought that it was a joke. And so they stood in the city and they perished in the city. But we find that the angels seized Lot and his wife and their daughters, grasping them by the hands, bringing them out of the city. We're told in Genesis 19, verse 16, God being merciful to them. And they brought them out of the city. And then there was instruction that was given to them. The angels also commanded them, saying, you see this in Genesis 19, verse 17, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. 
You go on, Lot basically pleads for a nearer destination. I can't go to the mountains. They allow him to go to a nearer destination. He goes to Zoar, and by God's grace, Zoar is actually spared from the judgment because Lot goes there. But as they're fleeing, the angels had given the command to not look back, but Lot's wife did look back. And she died. She disobeyed the angel's command, and she became a pillar of salt. Genesis 19, verse 26. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Now, a little bit more. We do well to remember the context in which Jesus said that. Jesus said that in Luke chapter 17, verse 32. I'm, given the nature of this message, I'm not going to unpack in detail the whole context, but let me paint a little bit of a picture for you. In that context, Jesus was describing what it was going to be like in the days of the Son of Man. Namely, in the days leading up to his return and the judgment that would ensue upon his return. Now, contrary to the view of some, despite whatever cataclysmic birth pains are coming upon the world in those moments leading up to Jesus' return, you look at Luke 17, verses 27 and 28, you see that people will still nonetheless be buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage. They still will be doing things like that, eating and drinking and so on. So the world, contrary to some people's view of eschatology, the world will not be in a converted state at the time of Jesus' return. The world will be in a kind of consumed with the things of the world state, even at Jesus' return, even despite the birth pains that are increasing as his return grows nearer and nearer. So that's why Jesus applies the teaching. Again, in Luke 17, the surrounding context, Jesus applies the teaching in the way that he does, essentially saying something like this, be ready to let things go. When the judgment's on the horizon, if you're on the housetop, and all of a sudden you see judgment coming, you don't go back into the house to get things. You make your way out of there. If you're running in the field, you don't look back. You just make a beeline for safety. In other words, you might say by way of application to us, guard your heart. Don't be so attached to stuff, to the things of this world, to normalcy, to the world, that your hearts and your affections become anchored to this age. I'll say that again because I think that bears just us grasping. Be on guard. Guard your heart. Do not be so attached to stuff, to things, to normalcy, to the things of this world that your heart and your affections are anchored to this age. Remember, as Jesus said in Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. As it has been said before, and I will say again, she was taken out of Sodom, but you could tell that Sodom was not taken out of her. She's escaped the city, but she so longingly, that appears to be the language here, she longingly looks back to that from which she ought to have been detached That's part of the idea, right? You you should be running for rescue. Yet she longingly looked back to that from which she ought to have been detached. So to apply this further, the disciple of Christ must remember her. I'll give you some of my own gleanings from J.C. Ryle's gleanings and his expository thoughts on the Gospel of Luke. Remember Lot's wife. Remember that she was the wife of righteous Lot, but that didn't lead intrinsically, indefinitely, to her being spared from judgment, even though she was Lot's wife. Remember that the longings 
of this world and for this world were so strong in her heart that she disobeyed blatantly the command that the angel had given her. God has called you out of this world. Remember that. He's prepared a place for you that's far better. So cut the cords of any unhealthy, unbiblical, unsound ties to the things that God is calling you to leave behind. To the things that He's calling you to be untethered to. Cut the cords. Burn the ships, as it were. No Christian, as he or she sees the end of the age coming, should be like Lot's wife. Loving the world and having a kind of sinful regret for the judgment that God will bring upon it. Remember Lot's wife. She's the one who looked back longingly to that from which she ought to have been detached. And she became a pillar of salt. By way of application for you, Christian, remember, you've been called to press forward. You've been called to look up from whence your redemption comes. You've been called to look up and eagerly await the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God doesn't want you or I clinging to the things of this world. He doesn't even want you clinging to normalcy as you know it. You know what He wants? He wants you and He wants me clinging to Him. And wherever He might lead us, we know that He goes with us. And we know that He is bringing us to Himself. So the first thing I call you to remember today is remember Lot's wife, Luke 17, 32. Next, remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Now another example of this, a supplementary example, would be uh, John 15, verse 20, where Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So the actual language, remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, found in some renderings of Acts 20, verse 35. Now in the two references that I gave you, Acts 20, 35, and then in John 15, 20, specific things are being called to remembrance. We'll consider one of them in the third thing to remember. But I do think there's a principle there that we ought to gather. That we are to remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say that Colossians 3.16 can function as a kind of catch-all. In Colossians 3.16, we're told, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now the word of Christ is parsed and nuanced in different ways by different expositors. The words that Christ spoke... The words about Christ, the words that are commissioned by him, say via New Testament writers and so on. Ultimately, we know all scripture is inspired by the spirit of Christ. We are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Now, the word that's used in Colossians 3.16 for dwell is a Greek word, enoikeo. Enoikeo. It basically means, let it be at home. Let it inhabit Let it take up residence in. That's what the word of God is to do in us. It's to take residence in us. It's to inhabit us. But then keep that in mind. Paul says to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Let it inhabit you. Let it take up residence in you. But then he kind of expands the metaphor, if you will, by saying let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
It's as though we are to be jam-packed and chock-full of God's Word. Just imagine a house filled up with stuff, and stuff is like coming out from everywhere, so to speak. That's what it's to be like with us with the Word of God. You're so full of it. You're full of the Word of God. It's richly indwelling you. It's a beautiful picture here. It's reminiscent, I think, of what Charles Spurgeon had said of uh, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He said of Bunyan, he said, prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. In other words, he bleeds Bible. He said the very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be filled with the word of God. Give yourself to the thinking upon, to the memorizing of, to the meditating upon the word of God. Remember God's word. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. To develop this just a little bit more briefly, if somebody were to ask the question, why? Why should I be given to the task of storing up the word of Christ in my heart? Why should I be given to the task of memorizing scripture? I would suggest the following, outside of the clear act of obedience that it would be to a text like Colossians 3.16, for individuals and even corporately as a church, I would suggest the following reasons. Number one, through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit works greatly in our hearts and in our minds. One example of that can be found in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. If you look in those verses, you'll see that the Word of God revives the soul. The Word of God makes wise the simple. The Word of God rejoices the heart. The Word of God enlightens the eyes. These are the things that the Word of God does. Refreshes, revives the soul. It enlightens the eyes. It rejoices the heart. Those are some reasons why you'd want the Word of God in you. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and uses it to renew your mind, uses it to illuminate your heart. Another reason would be, number two, you'll be better prepared for both situations that come your way, whatever they might be, as well as suffering. Take suffering for an example, right? And just as as a quick note, I do think it's important for us to remember in all times that as Christians we have been appointed to suffer. Right, Just because there are parts of the world where Christians have suffered regularly and very painfully and we have not experienced that here as a culture and a society, nonetheless, we should be reminded that part of the calling to which you've been called, if you have by the grace of God signed up, as it were, to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have signed up to carry a cross before you get a crown. You've signed up to suffer. If it's been granted to you to believe... Philippians 1.29, it's also been granted to you to suffer for his namesake. Paul told Timothy this, right? All who desire to lead or live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is good. It's good for us to know these things. Remember in John 16, Jesus told his disciples things that were going to happen so that when they did happen, they'd remember that he told them these things and so that they would not stumble. It's good for us to be prepared. This isn't fear-mongering. I'm not trying to fan the flames of fear or anything like that. It's just truth-telling. That's why Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, They will persecute you. 
So knowing God's word and having the scriptures hidden in your heart can prepare you for situations in a general sense and also suffering in the specific sense. A third reason to memorize the word of God is so that we might be compelled towards acts of obedience and that we might be compelled away from acts of disobedience. We'll see a specific act of obedience we're called to um, take upon ourselves in light of remembering Jesus' words next. But if you look at Psalm 119, verse 9 and verse 11, you see that principle work itself out there in the text. How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to your word. Psalm 119, verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So if you have the word of God hidden in your heart, you'll be more freshly compelled as the Holy Spirit brings those verses to mind to either do acts of obedience or to stay away from acts of disobedience. Number four, memorizing God's word makes meditating all the more accessible. You don't need a blue light in the middle of the night disrupting your internal clock and your sleep patterns as you go to grab a Bible verse from your phone at, say, like 1 o'clock in the morning because you're struggling to sleep because you have access to it in your mind. So you think about the Word of God. You've memorized some verses, and then you think about those verses. Maybe you pray in light of those verses. Maybe you ask questions about those verses. You do what you can to think upon those verses, but it's more accessible to you because it's right there in your mind. And meditating is something that we as Christians should be given to do. Not um, Eastern transcendental meditation where we just empty our minds, but biblical meditation where we chew the cud, as it were. Where we get the, the word of God in our minds and we chew on it, we try to digest it. And like an animal that chews the cud, it might come up again and we continue to chew on it and digest it some more. That's what we're called to do with God's word. Psalm 1 shows us that the blessed man is the man who meditates on the word of God. And he meditates on the word of God because he delights in the word of God. He's fruitful, firmly planted, and prospering. Uh, Meditation is also a means to understanding. Psalm 119 verse 99 says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I think it's also important to consider how meditation can keep you, biblical meditation, can keep you from being overtaken with different things that are going on in your life or in the world. I see a couple of examples of this in Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, the psalmist there says, um, Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Psalm 119, verse 23. So princes are speaking against him, People in positions of power are speaking against him, but rather than being overtaken with evil, rather than just contemplating like vengeance and so on, rather than being overtaken with despondency, the servant of God says, I'm going to give myself to meditating on your word. See another example of this in verse 78. Let the proud be ashamed, for they have wrongfully treated me with falsehood, or treated me wrongfully with falsehood, but I will meditate on your precepts. So having the scripture in your mind, having the word of Christ in your heart, gives you easy access to meditation so that you're not going to be overtaken by different things as they come your way. You could think about the word of God. You could be comforted by the word of God and so on. Now, there's more examples that could be given. Um, Some of you I know are reading through Donald Whitney's book, uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. He gives other examples of what memorization can do. It could increase your trust in the Lord. Great example of this in Proverbs 22, verses 17 through 19. It could lead to better preparation in your own heart and life for witnessing and counseling. Just think of the book of Acts. 
Peter's ready to give that sermon on Pentecost, quoting a lot of scripture. Stephen, in the midst of persecution, referencing a whole bunch of scripture. Paul preaching and say Acts 13, quoting a whole bunch of scripture. All that scripture that was memorized, hidden in their heart, was used in those moments. So you hiding God's word in your heart can prepare you for either witnessing opportunities or counseling opportunities. Memorization also provides a means of guidance. He references Psalm 119, verse 24. Some people might ask at this point, okay, how do I actually go about memorizing Scripture? And I just want to say this. I'm going to give you what I think, my personal conviction of what is the, I think, the biggest factor in memorizing Scripture. I think it's a battle that's won by delight. That, I think, is the biggest principle. I think any other strategy you use, I think that can be very helpful. But if it's not a battle that's fought by delight and won with delight, I don't think you get very far. Lauren marveled at um, how I remembered certain um, words from movies from when I was a kid. Pretty much the whole thing. (laughs) And it wasn't because I sat there and did due diligence and came up with different strategies of how to memorize this movie. I'm going to pause it right there. I'm going to rewind. I'm going to memorize a line. I'm going to go back and I'm going to rewind it. I'm going to memorize a line and so on. I just loved watching certain animated movies when I was a kid. And sitting there, enjoying it, watching it so much, it got in my mind and it got in my memory banks. So I want to say above anything else, if you just love the Word of God, if you pray that the Holy Spirit would fan your affections for the Word of God, you love it, you just enjoy it, you're like, I want to read it. I want to put it on in the car. I want to put it on in the TV. Rather than being tempted to go to YouTube and just scroll through all the selected things that I could watch about this and about that and about this and about that, I'm putting on the Bible. Before I listen to sermons, you don't want the ratio of like, I listen to 20 sermons before I listen to one chapter of the Bible. You don't want it to be like that. You want the Word of God hidden in your heart. Give yourself to it. Enjoy it. Go home today and say, I'm not sure what's going on in the book of Joel. I want to hear it. I want to hear it a bunch of times. Before I listen to a sermon about the book of Joel, let me get the word of God through the prophet Joel in my mind and heart and so on. Just get it in there. Enjoy. Enjoy the word of God. And I do think there are strategies that are helpful, but I think it's a fight that's ultimately won by delight. If I had to give a second piece of advice, I want to let you know that if you pursue memorizing the word of God intentionally, please know it will take discipline. I don't know anyone who just goes about memorizing the word of God and says, this is so easy. Like, I, I couldn't believe how easy it was for me to memorize the word of God. Nobody says that. Pretty much everybody says, I have a bad memory. Right? I, I don't know of anybody who thinks that when it comes to memorizing the scriptures that it's easy. And a lot of people say that they have a bad memory. I like what Donald Whitney said. I think it's a... I think he says, oftentimes at least, it's a, it's a motivation issue. Now imagine if during the announcements earlier today, Pastor Joe said, listen, we're doing something for the next month. For every verse of scripture that you memorize, we are going to give you $1,000. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting that idea from what Donald Whitney says uh, in, in his book. But just imagine what that would do to your discipline. You'd probably go home and be like, all right, no, no, no. I am ready. I got the book of Romans today. I got the book of, you know, whatever else. I'm going for Acts tomorrow and so on. You would say, for $1,000? Oh, I would so do that. And having the word of God hidden in your heart is worth so much more than $1,000. You can. You can do it. Maybe part of what you do is you don't set the bar so high, right? Just start with one verse. Enjoy it. 
Chew on it. Think about it. Ask yourself questions about it. Pray in light of it. And then after you get that, you do the next verse. But enjoy it. It's God's word. So that's the first two things I'll call you to remember. Don't, do not worry. Not everything that we're going to be considering in the eight things to remember will be uh, as much time. Some of the things that we get towards the latter part of the message will be more like brief references. Um, so the first thing, remember Lot's wife. Number two, remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, remember, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, I'll read the entirety of the verse. Paul, speaking to the elders um, at Miletus, the elders of Ephesus, as he's getting ready to leave them, he says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This quotation, as many of you know, is not found in the Gospels. So this was passed down. Paul remembered it, a statement made by Christ. Some believe that's more of a synopsis of his teachings. This was a statement. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And before I unpack this a little bit, I just want to tell you why I think this is very important, especially in the days in which we're living. When we are living in a day in which economic indicators continue to point that our society is going in the wrong direction economically, that our currency is continuing to be devalued, that although steps are being taken to kind of curb inflation, there have been things that have been done through our administration to cause inflation, and that as these steps are taken by the Fed, it's going to lead, perhaps to more banks collapsing. As more banks collapse, more fear will spread. As more fear spreads, people are going to be more inclined to do what they would naturally want to do anyway, and that is to hoard. But you as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to remember that regardless of the times in which we live, principally speaking, you're not throwing prudence out the window. You're not throwing prudent prudent saving out the window. You're not doing any of those things. But you're remembering that it is nonetheless more blessed to give than it is to receive. And there are going to be so many things that are coming down the pike. And I hope that they don't. I hope that they don't come down the pike. I've seen so many examples in the scripture of a nation on a trajectory one way and God so graciously redirecting. And I hope that's what will happen. But right now, if you were to look at the landscape and you say, where are we going and you just look at the fundamentals of what is going on and what's coming, you say, it's going to continue to get harder. So I just want to remind you as the people of God that Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. We'll unpack that a little bit more as it relates to the poor next, but I want to just unpack a little bit of what Paul's saying here. He uses that word blessed, that Greek word makarion, that's used here. Um, oftentimes it requires nuance to, to get at what that word means in different contexts. Here you might say is one of those times where happy is a kind of fitting understanding. It's more blessed. You might just say in a general way, it's better. It's better to give than it is to receive. And you might say, well, why is that? Why is it better, more blessed to give than to receive? I just want to set some answers forward briefly. One, it images God. God is a giver. God Loved the world, so loved, or loved in this way that he what? He gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. 
He's given his people, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, 1 Thessalonians 4.8, his spirit. He richly gives us all things to enjoy. What do you have that you've not received? Everything that you have enjoyed, every non-sinful thing that you have the pleasure of enjoying, it's been given to you by God. A good meal, a good walk, sunshine, a good workout, given to you by God. A good night's rest, given to you by God. Good friendships, good fellowship, all of that, given to you by God. He gives us all things to richly enjoy. What a giver He is. He gives wisdom to all who ask for it in sincere faith, nothing wavering. James chapter 1 verse 5. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. James chapter 1 verse 17. He gives peace to his people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. He gives rain. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 24. And we know he makes that rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Blessing people with harvests that we don't deserve. He freely gives his people all things ultimately. Romans 8, 32. There are so many examples that could be given. The point is that God is a giver. Who has ever given to God... That God should repay him. You see that kind of language used in Romans 11.35. As God told Job, who has ever given to me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven is mine. <laughs> right? The cattle on a thousand hills, including the hills, including everything else, belongs to the Lord. Yet he so freely gives us these things to enjoy. So when you give, just know. You act in generosity. You see a need. You meet the need and so on. You're reflecting your father who is a giver. Also, just some other points. Why is it more blessed to give than to receive? You could say giving is more profitable than receiving, seeing seeing as it will be rewarded by Christ in the age to come. It's not just something you enjoy and are happy about in the present. It's something that you are rewarded for by God's grace in the age to come. Jesus told his disciples, Luke 12, 33, Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. Right? Jesus spoke about a person giving a glass of water in his name by no means losing their reward. Uh, three, Giving strikes a blow to the temptation of covetousness. Every time we give, every time we open up our hands in giving, in generosity, it's as though we strike a blow to the proclivity towards covetousness and clutching. Four, giving is an act of obedience. Five, giving is an act of trust. You're essentially saying my preservation isn't ultimately in my own hands. I can give. I could actually sow bountifully knowing that God, when His grace will supply seed to the sower, I can do these things because I'm not trusting in myself to preserve myself ultimately. I can give as an act of trust. You can give knowing that by God's grace it advances the kingdom. I had read somewhere somebody talking about how much has been given to um, different organizations. They mentioned one company in particular And it's not just giving in those cases, it's purchasing items. And you think how some companies have grown in the last two decades because so many people have purchased things from these companies. And you might imagine when we give to the work of Christ, when we fund missionaries going out on the field and so on, we get to advance the kingdom of God versus advancing different corporations and the agendas that come with those corporations. 
I'm not telling you to not buy products and so on. I'm just saying there's a difference here. You can advance the kingdom of God and the work of missions by your giving, or of course we can advance other things with what we spend money on and so on. And this is a little bit of an aside. I just thought I'd pass this along to you. I I hope you're motivated by everything else that I just said, but I'm going to throw this out because it's so like God to command us to do things that are actually good for us. There are different studies. I'm not going to... Uh, rehearse all of them to you, but there are different studies that show the physiological benefits of acting in generosity. Do you know it can lower blood pressure? Interesting study. In one study, researchers looked at uh, whether spending money on others could actually, quote, cause a reduction in blood pressure. Um, On three days during a six-week study, 73 participants with high blood pressure were instructed to spend $40 given to them by the researchers. Half were told to spend the money on themselves, while the other half were told to spend the money on others. The researchers found that the participants who had spent money on others had lower blood pressure at the end of the study. Notably, and they include this in the study here, or at least in the article, this effect appeared to be as large as the benefits of healthy diet and exercise. And there's others. There was another study that spoke about the um, brain mechanisms that link generous behavior with increased happiness. I just call that to your attention, not because I want it to be the primary motive. I'm going to be generous because it's good for me. But doing what God says is good for you. Like stress and worry, we all know that's not good for us, right? And how many times does God tell us, do not fear? Or Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount, do not worry. It's amazing how God's commandments are actually good for us. So I throw that out as an additional incentive. So first, remember Lot's wife. Two, remember the words of our Lord Jesus. Kind of taking that as an overall principle to memorize scripture. Three, remember that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Four, along the lines of this, getting language from Galatians 2.9. Remember the poor. Remember the poor. I'm just going to read Galatians 2.9. I'll unpack a little bit of the context as I make this point. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was very eager to do. This call to remember can be misconstrued if taken outside of its context. This call to remember is happening within the context of Paul making a case to the Galatians for his apostleship. That case begins in Galatians chapter 1. It continues in Galatians chapter 2 as well. He talks about having seen James, John, and Peter and how they added nothing to his gospel. Paul had the right gospel and he didn't get it from them. He got it from the Lord Jesus Christ. He received it through revelation. He spoke about how they, those who were perceived to be pillars, James, John, and Peter, gave him the right hand of fellowship. He talks about in Galatians 2 how it was basically agreed upon that to Peter was committed the gospel to the circumcision, i.e. to the Jews. And that to Paul was was committed bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's within that context that the only thing that they encouraged Paul to do was to remember the poor. And Paul said it was a thing that he was also very eager to do. What appears to be in view here is that Paul was going to be a means to help Gentile believers care about Jewish believers who were suffering. 
we see this work itself out in the book of Acts, and we see it work itself out in the letters of the Apostle Paul. Now, should there be a care for all of the poor in a general sense? Of course. We know Jesus preached the gospel to the poor. The Proverbs and the Psalms speak about that. But we also know in light of Galatians chapter 6 that we're to do good to all men, but especially the household of faith. It appears what's in view here are those Jerusalem Christians who were suffering due to a famine that had hit, due to just the different circumstances, those who came for Pentecost and they stood there, they heard the gospel and they didn't go back to their homelands, those Jews in Jerusalem who were ostracized, those Christians, Jewish people who ended up coming to Christ and were suffering as a result of the famine. It's as though James, John, and Peter were telling Paul, remember the poor as you minister to these Gentile believers, may you build bridges. We don't want distance between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. We don't want that. you're one new man in Jesus Christ. So Paul, you can be a bridge here. Remember the poor. And you see Paul doing that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. What is he doing? He's gathering an offering from those Christians. He's exhorting those in Corinth, reminding the Christians in Corinth about how the Christians in Macedonia had given to suffering Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. See, Paul remembered the poor. And him and Barnabas, you could look at Acts chapter 11 verses 27 through 30, they delivered an offering to the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. And you could look in different letters. In Romans chapter 15, for instance, Paul said, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor saints, or for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Romans 15, 26. Paul said, to their credit, they were pleased to do it. Romans chapter 15, verse 27. In his letter to the church of Corinth, Paul told them that whoever they approved, the church of Corinth, he would send them to Jerusalem with the gift for those suffering Christians in Jerusalem. Paul also held out the opportunity of going himself in verse 4, but um, didn't know if that was necessary at that point. So when I say remember the poor, biblically, if you're going to follow the pattern of Scripture, Most immediately, that is applied to believers who are going through difficult financial times. It's not that you don't care about anybody or you close up your heart to those who are in need who are outside of Christ. No. But the Bible very clearly, as seen in Galatians 6, does force a preeminence to say do good to all men, but especially the household of faith. I think one application of this most immediately for us would be in light of what's going on in Mississippi. You think of suffering Christians who have lost so much and are in need financially. Remember the poor. It's not limited to that, of course. But that's an example. How can we help Christians who are suffering? This was such a priority for Paul that he's traveling to different places as he's preaching the gospel and he's gathering up offerings for suffering Christians in Jerusalem. So he's building gospel bridges. Hey, you Gentile Christians, you're as connected to these Jewish Christians as anyone else who is in Christ because we're one new man in Christ. But very practically, he's thinking of what they need. And they needed resources. And he was going around and he was gathering it. So remember the poor. Remember most immediately those Christian brothers and sisters in need and see how God might use you to help them. This will be the last one that's somewhat extended for time purposes. Remember the prisoners, number five. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3 reads, Remember the prisoners 
as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. So this is another point of remembrance. Uh, This is something that, per the language that's used here, it's something that ought to be part and parcel of Christian life. The writer of Hebrews addressed that in former days, addressed those to whom he wrote, saying that in former days they had suffered for the gospel. You can see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. They were reproached and they were afflicted, verse 33 of chapter 10. They had their property plundered, Acts chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. And they did not avoid associating with ones that were treated in this way. They had compassion on those in prison, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. Why am I saying this? Because even though he's telling them, remember those who were in prison, they had been doing that already. So you see that in Hebrews 10. This wasn't something that they weren't doing and they needed to do. This was something that they had done and they needed to continue to do. Remember, Hebrews 13.1 begins by saying, let brotherly love continue. This was one of the ways in which brotherly love would continue. Now, first, let me say, when the writer of Hebrews says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, This meant that those Christians who were imprisoned for the gospel, imprisoned for their faith, that they wouldn't be forgotten about. They would be called to mind. They would be thought of. But you could see that mere mental recollection is not the purpose, or at least the sole purpose of this imperative. As a Christian remembered, right? As they remembered as though they were in prison with them, it's as though their affections would be stirred and they would start to think something like this. If I was in prison, what would I want? Now understand, culturally, contextually, historically, the situation for Christians in the first century much different than now. If you were in prison in the first century, by many accounts, you did not have access to food outside of somebody providing you with food. You did not have access to, say, a garment if you were cold outside of somebody bringing it to you. Hence why you see Paul ask for Timothy, ask Timothy for his cloak in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You didn't have access to certain things. You needed people to come and bring you certain things. That's different than today, right? Because taxpayers are funding what people are receiving in prisons. So it's a different context. But nonetheless, the imperative still stands. Remember those in prison as though imprisoned with them. And then he goes on and he adds, And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. The word for ill-treated is only used one other time in the Bible. Um, it's used in Hebrews 11, as a matter of fact, Hebrews 11.37. This can refer to those who were ill-treated or harassed or afflicted, bearing indignities of one kind or another. It could even refer to being tormented. The context of Hebrews 11.37 provides many examples of this. The point remains, and I could dive into expositing the verse further, but the point remains, and it's very simply this. They were to be actively engaged in thinking about Christians who had left their line of sight and were imprisoned, most immediately for the gospel, most immediately for their faith. This is something that Paul even requested for himself, writing to the Colossians, Colossians 4.18, remember my chains. The Philippians apparently did this. Remember, they sent a gift through Epaphroditus. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, they sent a gift to Paul even while he was under house arrest. By the way, one of the prisoners that was probably remembered by the Hebrew Christians was Timothy. We get to the end of the epistle and we find that Timothy was imprisoned, but he had recently been released. It's reminiscent also of the words of the Lord Jesus when he said in Matthew 25, 36, I was naked and you clothed me. 
I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you visited me. Now I think most of you are probably thinking this already. Probably from the moment I mentioned Hebrews 13.3, remember those who are in prison, you probably thought something like this. How am I going to do that? I don't, some of you might have thought, I don't know any Christians who are in prison for suffering for the gospel. Some of, some of you might say, I don't know any Christians who are in prison. Whatever it might be, I want to encourage you. I want to give you a to-do that I think could be helpful for you. Years ago, and many of you are probably familiar with this, I had come across prisoneralert.com, which is found on the Voice of the Martyrs website. And it's a great way, even in your family, whether it's husband and wife, whether it's just you personally, whether you have children, it's a great way to remind us all that there are Christians who are our family that we're going to be with forever that are suffering. And through prisoneralert.com, you can see stories and different testimonies of Christians in different parts of the world who have been arrested or jailed for so many days. And you actually have the opportunity to select, if I remember correctly, from 24 different statements that you could include in a letter to them, and 24 different Bible verses. And you can basically, you, yourself, personally, your family, however you want to do it, you can draft a letter in the language of the person that is imprisoned, and then you can print it, you have the address right there, and then you could go to the post office, and then you could find out how to mail it to that individual, to that prison, and there are ways to even advocate on behalf of such ones. I would advise you to follow the instructions that they give because there's certain things that you want to include and there's certain things that you don't want to include. So you can see about how to do that. So if you're saying, how do I do this? I think that's one way. And you might say, well, that's so distant. I don't even know them. But they're still your family. I have family that I don't know in Germany. They're still my family. And if I wanted to reach out to them, it's not weird. right? You have family that's going to be your forever family and they're suffering. And you can imagine if you were in prison getting a letter from another country of some people that are thinking about you and praying for you. How might that encourage you? So remember those who are in prison. Let's grow by the, in the grace of God in that. Um, all right, these last few I'll go through rather br- briefly. Number six, remember those who rule over you. And then this appears contextually to be those who have gone on, who spoke the word of God um, Two people. I'll explain the context, but I'll read the verse. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So the writer of Hebrews is telling these Hebrew Christians to remember the leaders that spoke the word of God to them and lived a godly life in front of them. While a little bit later on, explicitly, living leaders are addressed Hebrews 13, 17, verse 24, many believe that the ones who are in view here have finished the race in light of the latter part of the verse. But essentially, essentially what the writer of Hebrews is saying, remember those who spoke the word of God to you. In other words, appreciate them. Just even in your own heart, think about when you first heard the gospel. Think about when you heard the gospel unpacked. Remember those ones and have a sense of appreciation in your heart. He gives them three imperatives here. I'm calling you to just one in this moment, but the text itself, which we do well to hear, is calling for three things. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, and then here are the other two uh, imperatives, whose faith follow or imitate, considering the outcome of their conduct. So in other words, as you think back to these ones who were a blessing to you, these ones who spoke the word of God to you, One is you're appreciating, thank you, Lord, that they spoke the word of God to me. Here's a call for pastors, by the way, right? This is what you want to be marked by. 
You want to be marked by some, uh, marked as somebody who speaks the word of God to the people of God. That if people don't remember much else about you, that one of the things they remember above anything else is that he spoke the word of God to me. He preached the word of God. And in the people of God, the sheep who love the voice of the shepherd, they love to hear the shepherd's voice. There should be a sense of appreciation. Even for those who in times past spoke the word of God to you and have since, say, for instance, gone home to be with the Lord. But then you think about the example of their faith. Whether it's the faith that was shown in the midst of suffering. Whether it's the faith that was shown in the midst of daily living and ministry. You look for those things and you say, I want to imitate that. Examples are so powerful. And you look back in your mind and you try to remember those who spoke the word of God to you. You remember good examples and you say, I want to glean from that. I want to appreciate. I want to glean. And I want to consider the outcome of their manner of life. I want to see their trajectory so that I might glean from it, appreciate it, and then imitate where appropriate. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. Seventh, and this one will be very brief. Um, First Chronicles 16.22. This one's a little bit longer if you're writing it down. Remember three things. God's marvelous works, wonders, and judgments. Here's an Old Testament reference. I included this because I think we would do well to remember what God has done in redemptive history, most immediately, and just to remember what God has done in history and perhaps in our own lives. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. Let that be a point of meditation. And finally, I close with this one. Remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. 2 Timothy 2.8 Paul tells Timothy, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. It's one verse so loaded with Christology. Paul says there, remember that Jesus, remember he was called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Yeshua, Yahweh saves. He was the Christ, the anointed one par excellence. He was the promised Messiah. So remember that Jesus Christ, the one of whom prophets prophesied, the one who was the seed of David, which reminds you that he was truly man. He was the promised descendant of David, the rightful heir to David's throne. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Remember that he was raised from the dead. The fact that he was raised from the dead calls to mind the fact that he died. He died. For your sins, according to the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Paul said, according to my gospel. And what was that gospel? I basically just communicated it to you in a nutshell, even as Paul did to the Corinthians. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. But honing in on this last statement, he says, essentially, remember that Jesus was raised from the dead. So, when you feel guilty because of things that you've done, or you look back at your past and you say, how could I be forgiven for this? You carry the shame of that. Jesus was raised from the dead. The sacrifice for your sins was accepted. That's the receipt. The proof that the Father accepted it. It was a good offering. When you fear death and you fight that fear, you remember that Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. 
you remember that he's gone to prepare a place for you. Prepare a place for you. He resurrected from the dead. He showed himself alive with many convincing proofs. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for you. Remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. If you find yourself in a time of suffering, remember that he suffered, but he came out on the other side. He first bore the cross, and then he bore the crown. Remember that Jesus Christ is alive. He's the first fruits of those who have been, or those who will be raised from the dead. His resurrection is proof that your justification has been secured. Romans 4.25. His resurrection is inextricably tied to your regeneration. We see that in 1 Peter 1. Remember that Jesus rose from the dead. This life is not all that there is. Jesus conquered death. Jesus absorbed the totality of the punishment that you deserve. And he's alive. And if you look at the way in which that that changed the apostles, you look at what happens in the book of Acts and the way that the apostles were ready to go in light of Jesus Christ having been demonstrated to be alive and how they could live with this kind of prudent abandon for the things of God because they've been given the Holy Spirit and because Jesus Christ was alive from the dead. May it empower us in the days in which we are living to live our lives knowing that Jesus Christ has been raised and that there is a coming resurrection of the just in light of him having been resurrected. Let's pray. Father, I do pray in agreement with my brothers and sisters that you would help us to remember these things, Lord. I pray that you would help us to remember Lot's wife, Lord, so that we might not be tied and tethered to the things of this age, Lord. But we might look up and anticipate the return of your Son. I pray for my brethren in this room, myself included, that you might help us to give ourselves wholly and more so and completely to your word and to the ingesting and the memorization of it. May we remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, in the days in which we live, may you help us to image you as we are so, by your grace, open-handed with those who are in need and open-handed with your work, Lord. Help us, Lord, to remember that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Help us, Father, to remember the poor. Help us to be a means by which we could bring relief and help, and most importantly, the gospel, to those who are in need. And particularly, we think of our brothers and sisters who are suffering as well. Father, help us. Help us to honor you as we seek to remember those who are in prison by praying for them, doing what we can to be intentional, to perhaps be a means of encouragement to them. Help us to appreciate as we remember those who have spoken the word of God to us, whose faith is worth imitating and whose manner of life is worth considering. Help us, Heavenly Father, to consider your marvelous works, your wonders, and your judgments, Lord. And help us, Heavenly Father, in the days in which we live, to remember Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to the glorious gospel. Hallelujah. We ask that you might do this for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.